This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Sophie to talk about her experience working in shelter medicine. Sophie worked as head nurse at the RSPCA and was kind enough to share some eloquent and considered thoughts on the shelter environment, behaviour and enrichment. The shelter environment is a crazy one and really different to general practice. Nurses and technicians working in this area have an extremely high volume of patients passing through their care, each needing extra love and TLC since they're not at that stage rehomed with a family. Despite this high-level caregiving and Sophie's work with the RSPCA inspectors and exposure to cruelty cases, she paints a really positive picture of nursing within this niche. It was a pleasure catching up with Sophie, and this episode is a must-listen for anyone who's ever wondered about working in the shelter environment. Hi Sophie, welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hey Kat, how are you going? Good, how are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Very excited. Excellent, I'm excited too. Now, I know you are a fan of podcasts, so I'm in a bit of a podcast drought at the moment, so I'm keen to know what are some of your favourites. Oh yeah, well I'm obsessed, I'm probably listening to them for most of my day, Um, getting up in the morning, (laughs) um, on the way to work, in the shower, even like sometimes before bed just to kind of zone out my head. I'm actually a big true crime fan. I think that's probably 90% of my podcasts, Um, even, you know, really terrible ones. I still love listening to because, you know, you you do run out quite easily if you listen to them enough. Um, But my favorite is probably actually one called No Such Thing as a Fish. It's Mm -hmm. um, a fact kind of based one. It's from the researchers that do the panel show QI. It's really great because it's just got, you know, a a group of people going through all the fun facts that they found that didn't make it into the TV show. Um, And yeah, they get really funny guests on there and really Um. learn little fun facts that are really obscure that you wouldn't learn any other I know the ones you mean, the ones (laughs) that Stephen Fry kind of sprouts out and says, is this true? And yeah, Yeah, that sounds good. I love um, true crime trash as well, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) The trashier, the better almost. Yeah, and they do get addictive and then you get podcast shame when you've like mm. binged a full season or yeah. like multiple seasons. Yeah, and you're like, off. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, I've got a problem. I think I need a podcast intervention. And I think I was getting really over the radio. You know, I used to listen to the radio a lot, but I hate like yeah. cheesy ads. I get really fussy with music sometimes. I'm like, nope, nope, and just skipping channels. So I think I just found this as a really good alternative and it's just, you know, constantly playing in, in replace of a radio. So that's good. Um, I hadn't actually listened to Radio Vet Nurse at all until recently. Um, one of my friends had told me a couple of times how much she loved it, but I like to kind of keep work separate um, 
from home life, just try not to like think about too much work stuff at home. So I was like, oh, maybe I won't go to some nursing podcasts. But as soon as she told me the second time how good it was, I was like, oh, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah. And yeah, I've been listening to them recently. I'm really loving all your podcasts. Yeah. yeah, I definitely thought yours would be like slightly more serious. I don't know what I was expecting. But then when I started listening to it, it was great. It was really conversational. Yeah, that's it. And and I should mention we're recording this um, sort of in the first half of 2019. And I don't yet know when it's going to launch because I'm stocking up on my episodes so that I can just have them roll out when I have a baby in October. Oh, that's a good um, idea. <laughs> it is a good idea because I know I'm going to be useless. I know from past experience that I would be utterly useless for six months. So, um, But I should mention that you came on my radar actually last year. Um, because we have a vet in common in our lives and she's a wonderful vet and she worked for us for a while until she um, had kids and she moved back down south to be closer to family and she's a big fan of the show and we're still in touch and I messaged her last year because I know she was working in um, at the RSPCA and working in shelter medicine and I reached out to her and said, hey, I think that this would be a really interesting angle, the shelter medicine, nursing. Um, is there a nurse that you can recommend that I could interview? And she recommended you. So that's how we got in touch. Yeah, Kylie's lovely. She was, you know, great to have. She's she's moved on now, but yeah, she was one of my favourite vets, vets to work with, definitely. Yeah, same. We adored her every time she, um, if she ever goes for a job now and somebody rings and tries to get through to Matt or I for a reference, our nurses don't let them get through because they're like, Carly, I'll tell you about Carly. <laughs> best damn vet you'll ever have. Yeah. We're like, um, we are here, but you probably don't need to talk to us now because you've just had a nurse like lose, lose their stuff over Carly. So <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, where are you from and where do you currently live? Oh, so I'm actually originally English. Um, I moved to Sydney with my family, like through my my dad's job um, for kind of the second half of primary school um, Mm. and then actually moved to Hong Kong for the whole of high school. So I have lived, um, you know, around and about. It's been really good. Um, And then I ended up moving back to Canberra after high school. Um, well, back, back to Australia. I hadn't lived in Canberra before, but moving yep. here um, to go to ANU, I was going to, you know, settle down here, do a biology degree and, and work in research. It was my original plan, but, mm-hmm. you know, things change. I did um, finish my biology degree, but mm-hmm. um, I'm enjoying living in Canberra. You know, I've met my partner here and I think originally it was very quiet compared to Hong Kong and Sydney mm-hmm. and other places I'd lived, but I love it now. I kind of really like the balance of, of quiet and city at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, it's a nice city. It's easy to get around and easy to get to open spaces. And, and I wish the beach thing. was a bit closer, but you know, you can't change everything. But that's okay. It's it's yeah, only an hour to the beach, so it's not. Is that Batemans Bay? Is that the yeah. closest beach? Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm. So yeah, yeah I've, I'm living here at the moment. I've been in Canberra for about nine years now, um, and I think moving around was really good. It got me to see lots of different animals, lots of, meet lots of people. Um, yep. even, like for my work experience for high school, I got to do a little project with some like kind of dolphin research where they were oh, awesome. doing some cognitive function stuff with them. So that was really interesting. And yeah, I think that started my original interest in like the behavior side of animals, not just kind of the science and, and straight biology side of it, just kind of seeing yep. how their brains work really interested me from that which is really important in shelter medicine I imagine so we'll touch on that a bit further in but um, how did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing because obviously you were setting out to do your degree in biology and then do research what changed things for you yeah so originally you know 
I, I had finished university and I went out, you know, thinking, oh, it'd be great. I've got all this experience. I've got my degree. Um, it'll be just easy to get a job. It doesn't always work that way. Mm. Um, I did get some short-term contracts with the government, but because at that stage I wasn't an Australian citizen yet, um, it was harder and I was being offered more short-term contracts, maybe two or three months rather than permanent full-time jobs, just because they do, you know, have pretty strict rules that for the full-time jobs, they are going to go for citizens first. If there's no one suitable, then they'll look at the applications from non citizens so I did enjoy it I did you know a few really interesting jobs walked around national parks doing reptile surveys um, you know Mm -hmm. IDing and collecting little lizards to assess the health of different national parks I loved that Um, but I think after a while you know it was coming up to a year and it was really unstable with you know when I was getting paid and how much I was getting paid because there wasn't always work and I still had a while until I was going to get my citizenship so I decided to kind of broaden out and see what else was out there when I was looking online, um, there was an, an ad up for a trainee vet nurse at the RSPCA. And I'd never even thought and considered about nursing, to be honest, but I'd always really respected them as an organisation. Mm. Um, in England, they're quite big. You know, I grew up as a kid watching a TV show where they would go through, you know, days in the lives of RSPCA workers. When I was living in Hong Kong, I volunteered for their equivalent, which is the SPCA, um, you mm-hmm. know, just walking dogs around. And I just always thought they were a really great place. Why not give it a go? Um, I wanted something hands-on with animals. I didn't necessarily, you know, think I'd be happy doing a desk job, um, just mm. doing research or data entry or anything like that. So mm. I thought, why not try it? And to be honest, I think it was perfect for me. It was a great decision. Mm. It worked out straight away. And, you know, even within a couple of weeks, I was like, this is definitely right for me. Um, of course, it's not directly applicable what I learned at uni, but it does help with so much of the background. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily medical, but a lot of the stuff that I learned has been, you know, so invaluable. Even pathology skills and lab skills have really helped me out. So um, some people think I'm not really using my degree, but for me, I'm definitely still using it. It's, it's not like it was a waste or anything at all. Mm. You know, I did go and do my cert for online oh, you did? as well. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So wow. um, I had the option of using some of my credits towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was studying online and it did seem a bit too overcomplicated for what it was worth. So in the end, I just did all of the subjects for the cert for. I thought it would be interesting anyway. Um, mm. And there's little bits and pieces Um, that I definitely remember learning at uni that pop up every day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, vets might be talking about something. And although I, you know, don't think I have this all-knowing understanding, I do pick out words and Mm. think I know a bit more of, you know, background of what they're talking about, which is great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so you started as a trainee veterinary nurse at um, the RSPCA and did your Cert for at the same time and worked your way up and... Um, and when I first reached out to you, you were still working there, but you've actually just moved into general practice in the last month. But how many, um, how long were you at the RSPCA? So I was there for about four years, um, yep. being, being the head nurse for the last year and a half to two years. Yep. Um, and it was, you know, such an enjoyable job. I loved it so much. I think mm-hmm. even though I have been a citizen for about two years now, I didn't automatically think, oh, I need to leave nursing and, and go and do something with my biology degree. Now I've got a better chance yeah. of having a job, um, you know, stuck in with the nursing and haven't really considered leaving at all. So I really yeah. enjoyed working there. I think um, it's a great organisation. A lot of people, you know, sometimes badmouth it, but, they, you know, we're working there every day. You see all the great that's done. So there's different, absolutely, there's always different sides to the story. So when you were working there as head nurse, what what did your role involve and what were you doing on a typical day? 
Um, well, I did do a lot of things similar to other vet nurses. Um, that are head nurses, you know, I do staff training, ordering inventory, rosters, and supporting other nurses. But the shelter is also really different, um, dramatically different from just a normal vet clinic um, and a general practice. We had a high number of surgeries, but quite simple surgeries, so mostly desexing procedures as all the animals mm -hmm. that we adopted out um, would come through the vet clinic. Most of them obviously entering the shelter, not desexed to begin with. So there was a lot of mm -hmm. anaesthetic monitoring. Um, our surgeons going through such a high load of, of um, desexing procedures, they'd be super quick. We'd get everything rolling through. You know, nurses would be in charge of making sure the animals were safely um, you know, ready for surgery straight through. And it was almost like a conveyor belt with a vet supervising the inductions, but the, the nurse is doing most of the work. And it was yep. a very high surgery load. Um, yep. So a lot of that. All the animals that came through also needed vet checks when they entered, ongoing treatment. So a lot of restraining, a lot of, you know, simple cleaning of wounds and things like that. There'd also be the mm -hmm. really dramatic um, things that would come in via the inspectors. So there was a lot of variety of what we would see, although we didn't necessarily have the capability to do specialised surgeries. So we would yep. do a lot of the simple procedures, but the more extensive procedures that were a bit more complicated often would be referred to somewhere else and they would help us out, um, you know, generously mm -hmm. to treat the animal. I also got a really cool range of animals um, coming through. So compared to a normal vet clinic, I'd see a really high number of, you know, rabbits, ferrets, um, birds and reptiles would come through. So mm -hmm. I, I'm a li little bit of a reptile nerd. Um, I really, really <laughs> like reptiles. So it would always be fun. Um, and, you know, they would hang around in the shelter for a bit longer. They're not always the pet that someone's looking for. So it would be nice, you know, up near the staff room, there'd be some, some reptiles in tanks. So they'd get to go and hang out with every once in a while. Um, so <laughs> my husband's pretty happy that I'm not having them at home because I just get that fix from at work. Um, but plenty of cats <laughs> and dogs as well, so it would be good. Um, That's awesome. I've never, I, I don't know. Actually, there is a nurse at our work who likes wildlife and reptiles and everything like that. But yeah, I do, you don't meet that many nurses <laughs> who are, who are um, reptile fans or, you know, more so than cats and dogs. So I think yeah. that's really, really cool. I think if I had like continued on at university and done honours, I would probably do something with native reptiles. But you never know. Like it's just one of those weird things that really interests me. I think they're fascinating. Yeah, um, absolutely. And what was the best part of your job when you were working in, in shelter medicine or at the RSPCA? Um, I really liked working with the inspectors. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if it's something that I'd ever be interested in doing full time, but I did cover for a couple of months when someone was on leave. And even normally working in the vet clinic, we'd often have to assist with inspectorate cases that would come through. It's really, like, is very distressing. And I think it's something that not all people can, can deal with seeing. But for mm. me, it's a really kind of triumphant experience. And, you know, you really feel part of a really big picture, um, mm. being able to help out. So you can see it from the beginning of the journey when an animal might have been removed from a really terrible situation. You get to see the steps of them going through the shelter, slowly improving. Mm. Um, and then in the end, you get to see, you know, our kennels and cattery staff finding the perfect home for them that suits, you know, that specific animal. And it, yeah. it's really nice to see that journey and, you know, mm. all the different stages of it as well. So, yeah, it's nice to see the ending, but it's also good to see the horrific beginning as well. You get to, you know, bond with the animal and really feel like yeah. you've done something great at the end of the day. 
It it never um, fails to amaze me what just basic, you know, flea and tick prevention and um, desexing and some um, socialization can do mm. for um, for an, a neglected or you know stray animal. Like I remember, a friend of mine was living in the Solomon Islands doing a a, a volunteer stint abroad and. A dog, like a local feral dog, adopted her sort of near uh-huh. where she lived and she would go jogging and this dog would go with her and then it would sleep on her veranda and just sort of moved in with her. And she was sending me photos saying, I think it's got this disease and that disease and it's really sick and it's got some crazy skin disease and blah, blah, blah. And I was saying, mm, I think it just needs worming and flea prevention. And yeah. I posted her a little care pack and we, you know, she she couldn't believe the transformation. Like it just turned into a normal, healthy animal. So yeah, you can oh, even see behaviourally, you know, with that dog, you'd probably see gradually just how much more confident we'd get around her and things like that. And yeah. I love seeing you know, that mental transformation for the animal just as much as the physical. Definitely a lot of animals come in extremely timid, um, you know, not trusting of people or just neglected and not really exposed to anything. And when they learn to enjoy new people and and new experiences, um, you know, that's just as rewarding as them getting nice and chubby and, you know, growing all their hair back and things like that. That's right. Yeah, there'd be a lot of just, um, you know, skin disease and malnutrition and um, anemia and just basic um, preventable things. And I'm interested to know um, how you guys focused on the behavioural enrichment and care provision for animals living in um, large groups and for some who would be staying with you for a really long time. Like um, that must have been really rewarding to be thinking about as well. Yeah. So we definitely have some animals that unfortunately have to stay in, you know, the shelters care for a long time. Um, In some cases, it might be an animal like a rooster. Um, We actually have a lot of roosters that come into the shelter because people get them as chicks. They don't realize they're going to be males. Um, They get noise complaints because in the suburbs of the ACT, you know, you can't have a rooster. Um, If you're getting Mm. noise complaints, you do have to rehome it um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, take it elsewhere. So a lot of people will surrender them to the shelter. They're for free um, if people do want them. Um, we just make sure they're going to a, a good home in a suitable area. But nobody really is in need of roosters. So some of them have stayed close to a year before. Um, we make sure they've got you know really big digging pits and all these different enrichments um, with food. But also um, some animals can stay in the shelter for a large amount of time. They may be awaiting a court case or something like that. Um, and unfortunately, we aren't able to rehome them until a legal thing mm. is sorted out. Um, in yeah. cases like that, we always try our hardest to make sure they're in foster care. Um, we understand mm. there's, it's never a good place to be for an extended period of, of time. However lovely, we try and make the shelter. Um, so we have really great foster carers that make sure um, the animals get used to a really good, healthy home environment um, and kind of transitioning them from where they were living before um, and getting them ready for their new homes. You know, sometimes a shelter atmosphere isn't good if, for preparing an animal to go into its forever home. So um, a lot of animals do go into foster care, not just, you know, young kittens that aren't big enough to be desexed. A lot of the time, yeah. um, for behavioural reasons, an animal might just need a slower transition into home life, so may need to go into foster care. Or, as I said, you know, the longer-term animals that are waiting for a court case or something. Yeah, yeah. And my brother worked as an animal attendant at the RSPCA in Burwood for about 10 years and 
he just looked after the puppies. So people used to say to him, oh, it must be so hard. And he'd be like, no, the puppies turn over really quickly um, and they're not there for a long time. And same with the kittens. But what's your what's the turnover like for older cats and dogs? Like, do you have a pretty good rate of getting the, getting them rehomed as well or are some of those long term? Yeah, we do get, um, you know, some longer term dogs. It might be a size thing. Maybe we've got like a really giant breed dog and a lot of people don't, um, have the size backyard necessarily in Canberra we've got a big move for smaller backyards and um, we might just have an animal that stays around because it's a big strong dog with a lovely personality we might yeah. also have animals come around um, come to the shelter we do have a lot of bull breeds come through um, and there's a lot of negative stigma you know towards some of these breeds so even though mm. you know they've had um, you know very intensive behavioral testing to make sure they're suitable for adoption and they're healthy animals they'll just stay around longer maybe than um, an old shih tzu with a lot of health problems because it's a more desirable breed so yeah that, that's often a reason you know um, we don't have issues with older animals being adopted necessarily because there are older people you know out there mm. that would like an old dog um, to settle Calm. at home with yeah mm. so there's a lot of the sympathy for the older animals I guess it's they're suitable for a lot of homes um, mm. something that does hold back the older animals though is sometimes there's bonded pets so for dogs or for mm. cats maybe they've been living with you know the other animal for for 10 years or something and we can mm. tell that they're so bonded that it wouldn't be fair to split them up yeah yeah it is a bigger um, responsibility to take on to adopt two animals at the same time um, yeah so sometimes that can hold them back make them stay at the shelter a bit longer but yeah. it does mean that they get the better home in the end so it's worth the wait I think in cases like that I don't know if you listened to another podcast called Blunt Dissection with Dr. Dave Nicholl, but he is um, a Scottish vet, but he was based in Sydney, I think, oh, around Oh, that London sounds interesting. Somewhere. No, I haven't heard that one. It's super interesting. And while he was in Sydney, he was uh, working with someone who had a charity that um, basically provided funding for really old, crusty um, animals <laughs> to get uh, to get taken to a vet and have you know be have, have a, a dental and be yeah. de-sexed and have their ears cleaned and their eyes checked and their coat clipped and washed and and then they would um you know get rehomed or at least be able to spend the last year or two of their lives mm. actually they were they're only expected to live you know a few months or a year of yeah. their lives but at least they would be comfortable and what they realized once they started doing this project was they were actually extending the lives of these patients by years like patients that weren't expected to live just had a new spring in their step and we've all seen those really old crusty dogs um, have a dental and you ring the owner the, the next day or two days later how are they going and they're like oh they're eating again and they're mm. happy and they're running around like a puppy so it must be so rewarding too to yeah. see those old guys come in and be like okay we're gonna pull half the teeth out of your head <laughs> and brush your hair <laughs> and you mentioned the coat leaf. clip before um but you know something as simple as a little quick groom can I've seen it just make wonders for a dog. So, you know, get yeah. animals that are just so matted. They've got almost all of their fur from their whole life just matted into one big clump and, you yeah. know, it pulls at their skin and you just take it off um, and you just see them bouncing. They're suddenly so much lighter. I've seen, yeah. you know, dogs scared of the wind because they've never felt it on their skin. <laughs> and then after five minutes, they're so excited, jumping in the air, kind of trying to bite at it. Aww. So. You know, That's it beautiful. is really nice. The little things like the groom and, and the dentals that you can't always see um, immediate. People don't think make such an immediate difference that they do. Like they really can help. 
Oh, they make a huge difference, yeah, Yeah, just to their general demeanour and outlook on life. And, yeah, I know what you mean too by the ones that are like, what is this sensation of air on my skin? Yeah, what is happening? I've got a friend, as you said, um, you know, it can extend the life so much longer. She had a, a little foxy called Poppy who she was actually one of the inspectors, my friend, and she adopted this dog that hated everyone except for her. Um, and they thought, oh, you know, she's going to have a month or two, really. You know, she wouldn't actually be adoptable with all these severe health conditions that she would be. Yeah. And she's also a behavioural fail. She wants to kill literally everyone except for you. Um, my yeah. friend took her home and she's ended up living, you know, I think another three or four years, apart, mm. except, you know, they thought that she would only live for a couple of months. And she's turned into the most lovely dog ever. She loves everyone now, you know, is never aggressive mm. and put on mm. all this weight and, and only recently lost her unfortunately last month but you know that extra Mm. four years that no one thought this dog would would have we don't know how old she was she we imagine she was very old um yeah but you know close to 20 or something but we don't actually know it's great to see that you can have that extra lease on life for those animals and they can have that second chance and it yeah. really is a second chance at life. And that must be another really weird thing of not um, not knowing the history of a patient and just yeah. you must become a bit like a detective, like doing doing those first sort of examinations and going, oh, okay, well, we think they're this old and it doesn't look like we've had this done and it hmm. looks like we might have an issue with this or, or, hey, this was really obviously someone's pet, you know. Definitely. And it can always trick you, you know, sometimes really feral cats can look the, the silkiest and healthiest animals, mm. whereas the really cared for animals, you you know, you might have a cat come in that's really weak and is in kidney failure, but it's been on treatment for five years at home. So mm. that initial um, first impression of a patient doesn't always, it can trick you sometimes into thinking. Learn, yeah. Yeah. Learn to withhold judgment. Yeah, it's hard to not um, always think the worst of people, I think, after a while because you do see such yep. terrible things. But then you always yeah. see those people come through that care so much and it kind of restores your faith. It's always a bit of a balance. Um, yeah. But no, at the end of the day, you know, even just the volunteers and the staff and all the lovely people that choose to adopt um, the animals and come in restores your faith that not everyone is terrible. And, you know, most people do love their animals mm. a lot. It's just, unfortunately, there's a few that aren't so kind. But, yeah, I think it's a, it's hard mentally as well to think about things like that sometimes. Absolutely. And and you were working there for a long time. And when Carly wrote to me, she said, the shelter environment is nothing like GP. It's really crazy. Um, the nurses have energy and compassion that just astounds me. We have a really high volume of patients passing through. So um, yeah, I can imagine it would be challenging on so many fronts and really high highs and probably some really low lows. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do get attached to the patients that come through because they don't have you know, that owner coming to pick them up at the end of the day. Yeah. Although you yeah. do have such a high volume of animals coming through, you still have to give a lot to each of them because, yeah, even if it's just a kitten that's coming for desexing and is going to be adopted in a couple of days or a really sick patient that may not survive, all of those animals, no one's coming to pick them up. No one's going to be keeping an eye on them to check they're okay except for you. So you can't yeah. help but really bond to, to all of them. Wow. And so with such an ex- an emotionally and mentally exhausting job, how were you setting yourself up for each day? What's your routine when you wake up in the morning? Oh, I'm terrible. I must admit, I just love sleep too much. Um, <laughs> I'm one of those people that gets up with the minimum time possible to get mm-hmm. ready in the mornings. Um, I'm not a breakfast person. I'll just have a coffee and get dressed, brush my teeth, um, you know, have a quick shower and head out the door. Um, but, you know, I... I'm quite organized in my head in the morning. I'm quite a good morning person. So when I, 
not a morning person, but when I do wake up, my head's switched on um, pretty well. So I'm big on lists and I think, you know, just before I start my day and I'm at work, I'll go write a really big list, fill out my diary, make sure I know what's going on. Um, You know, having just so many lists of short and long-term things that I need to do, even the really, really silly things, you know, I have a sheet of paper, I have my shopping list, it'll have my work stuff, it'll have everything on it. Mm. Um, But it just Mm -hmm. stops me forgetting the little things and it actually helps me become so much more productive because I find it so rewarding to scribble something out of a list, um, yeah. almost therapeutically, just give it a good scratch out. Make makes me feel good that it's done, sorted. Done skis. Yeah, don't need to worry about it anymore. So, yeah, lists and sleeping as much as possible is probably how I prepare myself in the morning. Yeah, both really healthy things to be doing. Mm. I remember there were a couple of dark years of my life when I didn't have a paper diary I decided you know I should get with the world and just (laughs) move to my phone and do what everyone else is doing and so I don't even remember it might have been a year or a year and a half that I tried to to keep up with that and and until I knew I was going to have my son and I thought I just need a diary so I can write down how many wet nappies and when did Mm. I last feed him and all that sort of thing in the first few weeks and when I got that paper diary again I was like oh thank goodness I feel so much better and I I just can't do it and I know I'm a really visual person but I can't look in my phone and click something into the scheduler I need to be flicking through and also writing I need to get milk or I need to book the car in or I need to do whatever so I I agree and and someone one of my um my in-laws was over when I just went back to paper diaries and I don't know why it came up but he was like who has a paper diary in this day and age (laughs) yeah (laughs) and I was like yeah who has a paper diary (laughs) (laughs) I think for me as well you know if I'm out and about and I need to remember what's on my list and I don't always have access to it if I've handwritten that list it it has processed through my head a bit better than if I've typed it out and I can kind of visualize it a bit better in the in my mind's eye, I guess, um, if Me it's handwritten, too. just kind yes. of gets it into my head. So I can't promise that I'm always really productive with my lists, but I'm a big maker of lists and it makes my head feel yeah. a bit clearer just having it all written out. Do you think you're not. a visual learner? Um, it depends. I am actually someone that can read through a textbook and absorb that quite well. But if it's yeah. a, a complex um, you know, process or something, I always find watching a video or seeing someone physically demonstrate it is going to really sink it into my head. So I I can work um, in a lot of different ways to learn, but for something that's really complex, I definitely need to see it visually to to get it into my head. It sounds like you're the same as me. Like I'm not kinesthetic and I'm not um, auditory or, or whatever it is. But even when I was writing my study notes in for my like, my year 12 exams, I would write them out and then I would condense them and condense oh, them. And exactly condense the them same. And, and I'd end up with yeah. an A4 page with like a whole year's worth of work just crammed into yes, it because I'd just rewrite too. and rewrite. Same, just keywords. And then when I needed to remember something, I would actually just visualize the bit of paper mm. and see what I'd written. Like I wouldn't actually. <laughs> I think I loved remember. one of my exams. You could bring one A4 sheet of paper yeah. with you. And yep. I just crammed a ridiculous amount of stuff onto it. And it wouldn't have made sense for anyone else, um, no. the amount I've condensed it so much. But yep. it was almost like having an open book exam. I had so much content there. So yeah, it's good. There we go. You're just going to work with what works for you. And I think when you're a visual person, getting that physical diary out and making mm. plans and that sort of thing, it does make you feel like you're back in control and everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm down with that too. And what weekly or daily habit makes your life better? Oh, I really like my alone time and my quiet time. Um, yeah. So 
it's just initially when I get home from work. It could be a good day or a bad day, um, but I like to just give myself 15 or 20 minutes of, of quiet time, maybe in the shower, like a really hot shower, some music blaring, like quiet time in my head, I mean, with the, with the yeah. music. But sometimes yeah. I will be quiet while I'll just sit there. I've got a really nice fish tank, so I'll sit there and daydream looking at my fish and having a nice cup of tea, basically giving myself that 15, 20 minutes for my mind to race if I need mm. to. Um, mm-hmm. If I just cut off my brain completely and say, don't think about work, it's going to keep creeping in. So mm. give myself that 15, 20 minutes to stress about the silly little things that probably don't matter and I can't do anything about because I'm at home, but at least let my brain go through it. Um, yeah. And then if I have that designated time and just cut it off, it's done, then it's it's just a clear deadline where, okay, no, you're done with thinking about work stuff. Now just relax. You're at home. Yeah. Um, and I do like to keep it quite separate. I think as we've already discussed, it is quite mm. emotionally challenging the job. I feel like my, I'm not sure how to explain it. I feel like mentally I'm quite good um, at processing things, just quietly talking things over in my head. Um, mm-hmm. So I need that alone time just to go over things and reassure myself. Um, otherwise mm-hmm. it does build up. So I need that alone time to process what's happened um, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. kind of sum up the day. Um, what else? I also found my life's a lot better now I'm spreading out my study. So I'm currently studying at the moment again. Um, uh-huh. I'm doing advanced certificate in feline behavior with the International oh, cool. Society of Feline Medicine. Um, I never really had cats as a kid. Um, I've got two cats at the moment. I've become almost like a crazy cat lady um, and <laughs> probably do like them more than lizards, actually. So cats are kind of my thing. I'm doing this two-year course online. Um, wow. and I'm really, really making myself do two short sessions a week. Um, yep. They don't have to be long. It can even be 10 minutes, one of the sessions. But yep. I can't just put it off for weeks and weeks, which I've done in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it really makes a difference. I feel like my work is actually a lot better quality work doing it this way. Mm-hmm. I don't have that guilt at the back of my head, like, oh, you didn't do anything this week. You didn't do anything this week. So yeah. I find it quite fun and quite interesting. So it is helping me a lot. You know, it's it's actually a really enjoyable course for me. So just making sure two sessions a week um, and not leaving it to the end, like I did with uni and my cert four, because that was something yeah. that I did a lot. Um, mm. And it, it affects your work, but it also affects your, your mental health quite a lot if you're really stressing and feeling mm. that you can't complete it. I know with my Cert 4, there was times where I was like, how am I ever going to finish this? Yeah. Um, and starting can be really challenging. So if you've made a start and you're just chipping away in little increments, I yeah. think that that's better than when it just becomes this big monster in your mind of, oh, now I've done nothing for six weeks and mm. I'm really far behind. I don't even know where to start. And this course that I'm doing is really good, actually, because the assessment tasks are really diverse. Um, they ask you to make educational posters, to design um, like kitten classes, for example. So it's mm-hmm. not all just, you know, write a thousand words on so-and-so. Yeah. It really tests your brain and how to communicate your ideas in different ways. I think in the past, maybe I would struggle explaining my answer in anything apart from just written paragraphs. So. Yeah, yeah. it makes you process things in a different way and you learn a bit better if you're doing it in an interesting kind of assignment. So is the course through ISFM? Yeah, yeah. So Excellent. It's really, I'll really put a link good. to it. What's it called? So this one's the Advanced Certificate in yeah. Feline Behaviour. 
I think I could be wrong, but I think that that is the same course that Nat from Australian College of Vet Nursing mentioned in her episode. Oh, possibly. And she also mentioned that she was um, just doing it in small increments because mm. she's re- really busy with work and that sort of thing too. So she was sort of saying every afternoon I just make myself do even 10 minutes and I stop even if I'm interested. Um, okay, so yep. just It's like a little treat every day just to do a bit more. So it sounds really good. And I think that at the moment – cats um and you know feline behavior and cat handling is a really really important area i think that we need to get up to speed with that and Mm. i know at my practice we definitely do yeah i think it gets neglected sometimes um yeah yeah. it's just it's it's a thing a lot of thing people think oh we need to be more conscious of our handling of dogs you know they can cause a bit more damage if they are not handled correctly but at the end of the day cats need to have that stress-free environment um it'll reduce the likelihood of you know any any bad things happening in clinic but i noticed a lot um at the rspca we had a whole separate room for cats we had everything quite separate for cats and dogs and it can make a huge difference to just Mm. you know you don't have to worry about handling techniques as much if those animals have a lot less stress on board Yeah. yeah and it's easier to ignore the issue with cats i think because they don't they're not so vocal in complaining mm. if things aren't um, to their liking at the practice, but you, you can make a huge difference. And we've been pretty good since I went to the Wasava conference in 2015 with things like um, a separate cat area in the waiting yeah. room and getting keeping cats off the floor, just elevated in a cat parking space on a table. And we put a cover over them, covered with Philly Way spray, and we mm. have um, you know pheromone adapters in a separate cat hospital and that sort of thing we've been really good with all of that but on our list to do for ages for myself and for our head of nursing um, and patient care has been banning the scruff and getting around getting our heads around how to do that but it's so difficult because we we're growing as a business really quickly so we always find ourselves drawn to like oh we need to respond to this and we need to fix that and we need to train this person and it keeps getting sort of pushed down the list but it is definitely something that we need to do do you cover that in the course like do you have any tips on at the moment we haven't got to the handling section I'm about halfway (laughs) through the the two-year course and um, I found it really interesting so far and there is a handling section coming up you know I think there is one or two very rare circumstances where a scruff is probably what you're going to need to do. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that other 99% of the time there are alternative ways. I'm a huge fan of towels. I think just toweling and toweling, even an animal that doesn't seem particularly stressed when you're getting it out of a cage. I think she, Mm -hmm. you know, he or she, that cat can feel so much more protected being transported somewhere. If it's Mm -hmm. just got that kind of safety blanket around it, covering Mm -hmm. a head, um, you know, just gently draping a towel over a head can make a world of difference when you're doing mm-hmm. procedures. Um, and a lot of the time you won't need that tight restraint if the animal, you know, is feeling more protected under that towel. It's also a nice, you know, little safety net between you and the cat if they do decide to lash out. But mainly it's just to keep them a bit more calm and in a dark, quiet space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it does make a big difference if possible you know, to keep them in a really quiet area without all the dogs barking everywhere. It's Mm. not always possible. It's actually rarely possible. But I've just seen, you know, the same cat on a day in the clinic, for example, when there was no dogs around at all that were barking, just completely Mm. silent dogs, and the same cat come back um, in a completely different circumstance. And just, it's it was a more dangerous experience for the staff. 
it was a more stressful experience for the cat and he never really mm-hmm. trusted us again after that bad experience. Mm. So the little yeah. changes that you can do, I know it's always hard um, with way vet clinics are set out and things like that, but you know, in an ideal world, if cats and dogs were completely isolated and no scruffing and just towels to restrain, I think I would love that, but I understand it's not always possible. The toweling is a great tip and I'm going to take that on board mm. and there are so many things you can do even with a really minimal budget and with um you know practical a, a practical layout that's not great like we're in mm. an, a building that's literally over a hundred years old and it's not a purpose-built facility and we don't have a separate area within the waiting room but we still just have signs up saying this is the cat area this is the dog area please don't bring your dog over to the cat area and we tell people you know lift the cage up let's cover it up with this and you can actually just make when we started doing that, I remember my husband was like, the cats are so much better when they're coming in for consult just from being covered over, given some pheromone, removed from the dogs. And sometimes dog owners are really oblivious. Like they'll just let their dog be Mm. sniffing a cage that's on the ground. And you're like, "Um, can you please get your 50 kilo dog away from the the cat? And it's worth mentioning as well, if possible, like if those towels have been in the cage with the animal for the day, um, you know, if they're a stressed animal, it's probably going to release stressful hormones onto the towel so that's not ideal but if you do have a towel either that's come from the home with the cat or has been in the cage with the cat um, I feel like that does make a difference too it might be just in my head but it does seem to make make them a bit more settled yeah we do ask owners to bring something from home if they're in for day surgery and another really cheap thing that you can do when I got back from the Wasaba conference I was looking at Caranda beds, I think they're called. They're like elevated kind of bunk beds that you can throw a towel over and they can hide under or get on top. So they've got mm. vertical space as well. And we ordered one, but it was really expensive. And I, I wasn't convinced that they the that they so much wanted the the vertical space as the hiding I felt like was the preference so I just went to one of the you know two dollar reject shops whatever it was and got um some buckets that were sort of um you know short squat ones with Mm. big um circumference and then I just cut like a little igloo door hole out of them with a Stanley knife and we just pop those upside down in there and you can fully wipe them down with trigene at the end of the day like you could have a cat flu cat in there and it wouldn't matter and they just um they love just going in there they get in the little hidey hole and they curl up and they feel really safe when when you go in there to get another patient out or do something they just tucked up in there going well I'm really safe so there's so many um, cheap and easy things you can do yeah and the amount of inventory we order you know although cardboard boxes aren't easy to disinfect and they'd probably be one use instead of them going straight into the recycling bin we'd always yeah. repurpose them we'd have um, like little cat dens for cages but we'd also have kids come in Um, during school holidays for programs Mm -hmm. like arts and craft ones learning about how to make enrichment for their pets at home Um, so little things that you've got around the house like toilet rolls or or cardboard boxes why not give them just you know an extra life Mm -hmm. as an enrichment object before chucking them in the recycling if that's where they're going to end up anyway Um, and we've definitely got plenty of cardboard boxes around vet clinics so that's always you know something that doesn't require putting any money out but exactly can really help the patients now, do you have any strange habits or superstitions? Oh, um, I do have a bit of a weird obsession with the number three, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like when people really love even numbers or something like that. It's, it's just something I've really liked since I was a kid. It doesn't affect me that much, um, more just in my out of work life. You know, I like doing things in threes. But 
at work, you know, generally if I'm putting needles and syringes together, I'll do it in threes or, you know, tearing pieces of tape. It's just a little thing that creeps into my life. But <laughs> it doesn't make me upset if I don't do something in threes. It's just a little preference I have. <laughs> That's awesome. So if you're yeah. getting pegs to put on the clothesline, oh, would yeah. you get three? Pick up three at a time. I wouldn't put like three on each item, but I would pick up no. three at a time. And yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. <laughs> That's really cool. I've not heard that before, but I do like it. Yeah. I think it's rubbed off on my partner as well. He's secretly doing it all the time now, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) He's picked up on it. He's like, this is the best thing ever. I don't think he likes that he does it. He just does it and he doesn't like that he does it. Uh, My husband, when he chops like a salad or chops vegetables, he will count every chop in his head. Um, (laughs) That would get tiring. Yeah. And at the end, he'll be like, 876. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I can't believe you were just counting that whole time. Well, hopefully that doesn't rub off on you and you don't pick that up because that would be exhausting. I would not have the attention span to do that. My brain would quickly be wandering. So, uh, dear. And can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory? Yeah. So I think a purchase I made that definitely made a difference was I got myself a really good new pair of boots um, and I made sure I put insoles in them from the beginning. It sounds like a little thing, but it just positively impacted my day so much um yep. and this in this industry we're on our feet so much and yeah just having aching feet all the time was actually getting to me I was just yes being grumpy because my feet were sore all the time um and just having enough support I'm lighter on my feet you know I feel like I'm jumping up getting to do the next task quicker and feeling yep. a lot less fatigued at the end of the day I was coming home just exhausted putting my feet up and not wanting to do anything but really good quality boots and insoles um yeah, they have made a big difference. Um, and then also a new purchase that, um, you know, the RSPCA got was having portals between their cages. So if you imagine, you know, hospital cat cages, having mm-hmm. just a little portal, like a door in between the cages, so you can open mm-hmm. up one cage into two or three or even four in some cases and close them oh, whenever cool. you like as well. So the vet clinic was busy quite often, but if there was an empty space, you could always open that up for a cat to have an extra cage we'd have um, really long stay patients that were in hospital and giving them those three cages to move their legs around and and keep movement Mm. up really helped their sanity a lot of the time with cats Um, we didn't really use them for dogs in any capacity because they were only on the smaller cages but it was really good Mm. Um, it would really help the cat's welfare as well stop a lot of like frustration um, based aggression that you can see in cats sometimes if they're in a cage for Mm. a long time um, mm-hmm. And yeah, just I felt that it helped with their healing. They were a lot less stressed because they could move around. Mm-hmm. In some circumstances, it also helped with staff safety. If there was a cat that was a bit aggressive or a bit sore or something like that and you did need to clean it out, um, it was easy to isolate, you know, that cat yeah. um, from its food and litter and things like that. So and give it a nice that hidey sounds- section and a section with the food and water and that's good. That sounds great. I've seen photos of those actually, and some where the portals go from go vertically as well, so you oh, can put yeah. like a raised bed or something where they can jump up into the next one. And yeah, it does sound great. And I think that's a requirement too if you're going for 
um, accreditation um, with ISFM or those sorts of places, you need to have um, the ability to have mm. cats in a, a much bigger space if they are there long term. So definitely great for enrichment and, and their welfare. And there would be a lot of cages of um, kittens as well. Hypothetically, a litter of kittens may come in and, and you know, get cat flu or already have cat flu as they enter the shelter and need to be in isolation for a week or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that would be perfect for them. They would grow. You want to keep them together as a litter, but also, you know, you need to keep them contained. So that would be good um, for cases Did you like see that. a lot of infectious disease in general with the RSPCA? We were really lucky, actually. Um, I think we had the best record. I don't actually know the numbers off the top of my head, but we had a really good record. Um, I think it was about a six-month period where no cats... Um, came down with cat flu in the shelter. There was yep. a few cats that came into isolation, but they had come into the shelter quite sick already. Um, yep. It's quite common, you know, in any shelter environment for cats to become sick when they're stressed and in their long term. But we changed some of our um, vaccination protocols, um, tried to reduce stress of the cats. And yeah, we managed to not have any animals getting flu in the shelter for a really long period of time. Um, when I first started, there was a lot of instances. I, mean, I guess it can fluctuate around as well. Um, but no, we had really good... We would get ringworm come in every once in a while, um, but we were very yeah. lucky that, you know, cases of parvo would be almost non-existent coming through, which I know <laughs> is very different from other shelters. Sometimes they can see a lot of parvo. Yeah. Um, cat flu, because we would have a really high level of cats at the shelter um the pound actually lost their cat facilities in canberra a few years ago so we were taking on all of the cats in the area they weren't going to mm -hmm. the pound whereas dogs were kind of split between the two so a lot of cats coming through basically all the cats from canberra we would have at one point we would have really high numbers of, of flu but towards the end almost no no cats at all so that's good mm. ringworm yeah. is hard to treat though um because it's quite mm -hmm. a long long process so a lot of times if there were cats or kittens with ringworm they would have to go into foster for their treatment because it would be you know not fair on them to be in the shelter for that long is it hard to find foster carers given that it's zoonotic luckily we do have really dedicated foster carers but because mm. it will you know if you take on a litter of kittens with ringworm um, you can't really take on healthy kittens for for the rest yeah. of the season oh um, uh, yeah because it can stay in the environment for so long um, and it you don't want, you know, other foster kittens coming and getting it. So we'd have designated foster carers that would do it and there would be a couple of really committed ones that would take all the ringworm litters. Um, mm. Luckily, they weren't common enough that we would struggle because we had two or three foster carers that would do it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it would be a lot harder. Sometimes they would stay around in the shelter for a few days until we could find a foster carer, but we wouldn't. We would in the end. Yeah, yeah. One thing that we see, I mean, we do see quite a bit of parvo up here I think probably because there's so much rainfall up here mm. as well and it's a an ideal environment for it but we also see um, quite a bit of hookworm and it's always we to always try and pick up parvo on the phone maybe so that we can start our isolation protocols yeah. but um, often if I hear that the demeanor is fine and if the puppy's eating then I'm usually like mm, it's probably hookworm and then if they come in and they're anemic and that sort of thing um, sometimes we get whole litters that need blood transfusions and the, it's not always that the owners aren't worming it's just sometimes that they're not worming with a good qu quality wormer so yep. did you see a lot of, of hookworm as well? 
Um, we wouldn't see much hookworm. We would just see really, really large general worm burdens. Um, a hookworm's yeah. not too much of a problem here, but we would have, you know, puppies come through that were just so flea, um, like flea and worm ridden. Um, yeah. A good example was actually my cat that I got. <laughs> I, we were worming her constantly at shelter. She must have had such a high worm burden that yeah. I bought her home and she ended up <laughs> leaving me a nice golf ball sized clump of worms one time. Oh. So I think it's sometimes <laughs> it's hard to just really get, um, really tackle it when it's so high and there's so many mm. worms in there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just, you know, normal litters of puppies and kittens that are, that are really, really worm ridden, but not yeah. particularly just hookworm problems. Full on. Mm. Now, tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory. This could be in a personal or professional capacity. Um, maybe this is actually a good way to go into, as I was just saying, my cat, um, Leela, had a, re- a lot of worms when she first came mm. into the shelter. Um, she was looking like a bit of a defeat for me for a long time. She was a kitten that came into the shelter. She was emaciated. Um, loads of fleas, loads of worms. Um, her, one of her eyes had actually kind of imploded and was just a pussy mess and mm. a really small kitten that was, was really weak. Um, I decided to take her into foster, give her a go for a couple of days. Um, at that stage, I didn't have any other cats. Um, so, yeah, we thought that she was getting better. She then got really severe cat flu, um, you know, stressful situation, flared it up. Um, thought, you know really went downhill thought that was a defeat she got better and then got ringworm and then we had to treat her for that um Mm. and sent her downhill again all this time she was so underweight that we couldn't um, perform surgery on her eye because we didn't think that she would actually get through surgery but she was the most affectionate cat that I've probably ever met so I just Mm. kept thinking although I feel defeated you know I want to give her a go she's still so bright even though she has no energy she just really wants to really wants to try and get around she she you know has that passion um, to keep living so kept thinking it was defeat there was probably four or five times where we thought that she maybe have to be um, euthanized but in the end yeah. you know she was my victory I put so much TLC um, in and you know she's probably my animal soulmate she's the cat or any animal that I bonded with the most and Aww. she's probably just obsessed with me she as soon as I come home she insists on being picked up and carried around for about half an hour <laughs> I can't sit down without her on my lap at all times so she's locked out of the room at the moment yep. um but yeah it was definitely a victory for me because a lot of people thought she probably wasn't going to make it we kept trying and kept being knocked down because she kept getting another issue um yeah but yeah in the end I'm really glad that you know she made it and also not like a specific defeat but a lot of the time um you know some days just don't go to plan um, in vet clinics and I remember there was one particular day where absolutely nothing was going right every little thing possible um, wasn't going right for us and you just end up feeling a bit helpless and that can be contagious in a vet clinic sometimes Um, Mm. if one person's feeling down and everything's going wrong it really can spread and affect how you work so Um, Mm -hmm. One of those days we just, the whole team got together and I organised like a really nice lunch for everyone to sit down. Um, Mm -hmm. We took a bit of an extra long lunch break and just debriefed with everyone Mm -hmm. um, about how everyone was feeling, what was going on with the day, that nothing was particularly anyone's fault, that some days just really, really don't go well. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, what can we do for the rest of the afternoon and what can we do next week to try and, you know, stop something like this happening again? And just sitting down, treating yourself to some nice food and an extra long break, talking it through Mm. with everyone. It just really boosted everyone's morale. Um, And I think it made us stronger as a team. Sometimes you 
want to just ignore a bad day and not think about it and not talk about it. But having a really good staff meeting, sitting down with your team and just talking about how you felt about the day um, Mm. really can help, I think. You can't just always ignore the bad ones. I think the debriefing is really important and even if there's no time to do it on the day because sometimes Mm. those days are the days that are just mental um i i recently had this concept explained to me by another guest uh m&ms morbidities and mortalities and i'd never heard of heard of them and they're kind of i think more of an academic thing but it's basically a debrief and you can still you know just earmark that case for an m&m at the next staff meeting when there Mm -hmm. is time to say this this was this case that we all remember how can we forget and here's what we here's what went wrong here's what we did right here's how we could uh, improve the situation next time here are some things that were just out of our control and he was saying it's really important that it not be a an exercise of finger pointing or blaming it's a debrief and so I think with you saying you know we just sat around and debriefed and just were able to talk about it I think that's so important I think as well at the RSPCA that there's lots of different sections you know there's the stuff um, that work just in the cattery and the kennels the admin team um, vet clinics lots of different teams that all come together um, in some you know maybe there's an inspector hoarding case that's come in and everyone will come together see a situation really differently um, and it's really good to get those external perspectives if you have had a rough day so yeah um, you know I can see how their section is working and what may have helped and vice versa for us so that was something that I think the RSPCA did really well debriefing um, and discussing what different sections and how we work together because I think working together and workflow makes a big difference with how um, instances like that go so yeah debriefing I think is something that's really important especially when even if it doesn't go wrong when you have a big day um, where a lot happens a, a debrief can never hurt Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic tip for any team. And I think that that's a beautiful story about meeting your animal soulmate <laughs> at the RSPCA and taking her on and um, having somebody to, to just, um, you know, come and be your, your best mate from the minute that you get home. And, yeah. and no doubt she's fully aware of all the effort that you put in and all the times that you could have given up on her. But I think that's a fantastic outcome. Mm. And she definitely doesn't hold it against us, you know, all the ringworm baths that we had to give her or anything like that. She's still (laughs) the most loving cat in the world. So sometimes I think she's a bit special. She loves me too much, but that's all right. (laughs) I think it's scary when you have those animals because you you realise that the bond is only getting stronger and stronger Mm. and you start thinking, oh, man, this is is, um, getting dangerous. Because she only has the one eye. I do worry, like, you know, she plays with my other cat. I'm like, oh, don't scratch out that other eye because she is so (laughs) dependent on me already. I could not, I don't know, she would just have to live in my backpack or something the entire day because that's the only way that she'd be okay. You'd have to get the, yeah, oh my gosh. It's, we, we recently thought our um, 11, 12-year-old geriatric Kelpie was um, getting di- diabetes. We were mm. like, is he PUPD? And um, we were really worried about him going blind because, yeah, he's like 22 kilo or something and our house is upstairs and we've oh, got a toddler yeah. and another one on the way and we're like, he needs his eyes to get away from the toddler. <laughs> yeah. But you know you'd do whatever it took. I already was going through in my mind, now how would we modify the house? Mm. We'd have to to not yeah. move the furniture yeah, I've had put a thoughts. bell on the toddler <laughs> perfect uh, very good well this might be a nice time to take a little break you happy if we come back in a minute yeah perfect 
Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkine. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkine contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkine probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from you, if you like. You can help too by scoring yourself some eco-friendly and oh-so-chic Radio Vet Nurse merch. Head to my website, radiovetnurse.com, and check out my glass-reusable coffee keep cup. I've also got a lightweight, shatter-resistant glass water bottle. All with Radio Vet Nurse logo, so we know we're in the club. Wink, wink. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Sophie. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Um, I think a lot of people jump in not really realising the daily tasks that we have to do. Um, And there's a lot of cleaning up. It's not just cleaning up. It's really important for what we do to prevent infection. Um, But there is a lot of cleaning and disinfecting. And I see a lot of trainee nurses coming in just being daunted by the amount of, of cleaning work that we do do. Um, There's also lots of not so nice cleaning, things like blood and diarrhea, even Mm. like vomit and pus that people encounter. And I think it's just worth (laughs) realising that it's not just cuddling puppies and kittens um, and restraining animals for vaccinations. There is a lot of hard work, um, you know, getting down on your hands and knees and scrubbing cages. Um, And I think a lot of students don't realise the importance of it either. Um, Mm. I listened to one of the podcasts before um, of yours, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, but the lady that works um, at the University of Melbourne. Carol, she's amazing. That was such an interesting podcast for me, and I wish Mm. almost every nurse when they they started had to listen to that because people really Mm. do underestimate the importance of it. Um, That's right. And it's not just cleaning. It's an integral part of what we do. So just making sure that nurses coming into the industry know that that's what they're in for. Um, Also, to realise that it's rewarding, but also can be really sad. I understand where I work. There are more sad experiences that we're exposed to. Um, But in any practice, you know, there's animals that you might have worked with for years and you bond with so closely um, Mm. and you have to lose them. You deal with angry and grieving customers um, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that can really get into your head um, sometimes. So mm. it's it's a job that's tough on your headspace and can easily, easily cause like com- compassion fatigue. So if you are struggling with any mental health issues before you come into the industry, um, not to rule it out, but maybe make up a plan for yourself. So, mm. you know, in this situation, how would I deal with it? Um, mm-hmm. I think because it can put a lot of strain on your mental health. And if you're already struggling, just plan out how you would deal with certain situations and you know if you need to do anything to mentally prepare um, for situations like that because Mm -hmm. yeah I have seen it get to a lot of people this industry and Mm. um, you know you need to know what you're getting in for although there's so many positive um, things that come out of it there's also the sad moments and and yeah just making a little mental health plan can really help I think Mm. and it's not a career that's going to make you really rich but it's something um, that I think can just be so emotionally rewarding so as well a lot of people may get into the industry and then suddenly realize that there's not enough money in it for them so yeah doing a bit of research before you jump in and and seeing kind of what the award wages are and things like that Um, making sure it is the right career for you because I know there are a lot of um, people that do study vet nursing and don't necessarily continue on with it Mm. Um, Yeah, so I think a lot of people are surprised that we don't get paid as much as other professions. 
Absolutely. That's all really good advice. And what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? Mm. Um, I think it's really hard. I, I studied online and I did definitely have some struggles. Um, everyone works differently. Um, but for me, I really struggled just having one final deadline for the course. So it was mm. uh, a two-year course. I had a final date and that was about it to finish the content. Um, I thought that would work really well for me, but I did struggle to find the motivation. I was lucky enough to be working full-time as I was studying, so it was really mm -hmm. good um, to learn practical skills. I feel like I learned so much working on the job um, and being mm. paid for my time while I was just studying. I was really grateful for that, but it did mean that I struggled to designate time to studying and left it very late. So yeah. as we discussed earlier, doing like two small sessions a week has made such mm. a difference um, for mm -hmm. my stress levels. And it's also made me produce much better work. So lots of little increments. Don't leave it all to the last minute. I know it's easier said than done. Um, mm -hmm. But making like a study diary is really good. You can even plan out exactly which questions you're going to do each day at week in advance yep. or something like that. Um, and ticking them off the list. And I think if I found something that was really, really difficult to get my head around, um, a concept, I would ask the girls at work, can you please just give me a demonstration, even if it was on, you know, a stuffed toy or something, or yep. just to physically see it happening. Although we discussed I'm not always a supervisional learner. I think if it's a really complex concept, either watching an in-depth YouTube video or seeing a physical demonstration would be the only thing that would actually get it into my head. Um, yeah. Yeah, and also remember never to be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, everyone started off new. Everyone started off not knowing things. I think a big thing with training nurses is they're scared to ask silly questions. Um, mm. And there's no silly questions um, for trainees. I just love them to come up and ask me the questions because it shows they're interested in learning. Absolutely. And I, I get more worried about trainees that don't ask questions because yeah. I know how complex it is to learn all of the material. And I know... Um, that there's only so much that you can glean from your notes and doing the assessments and that you should be left with questions and you should mm -hmm. be coming to work going, well, we learnt that you do this and this and this, but what I don't understand is is with the patient yesterday where I thought we'd do X and we actually did X plus Y. Why is yeah. that? Like those are all the questions that you really need to hear. And there's nothing worse than someone kind of winging it and pretending they know something that they don't because it can be dangerous. so dangerous yep, yep. for a patient and it might be an ego thing with the trainee, but I think um, everyone just needs to realise that, yeah, no shame in asking and it's nope. really dangerous to wing it. Yep, you actually, by asking questions, you flag yourself as someone that can be trusted because everyone goes, well, we know this person knows their limits and comes and asks, so yep. let's give them this responsibility. Whereas somebody who wings it, everybody's like, oh, we need them where we can see them. Mm. And as you said earlier, you know, I've, I've recently just changed jobs and going into a new job from a place where, you know, I, I knew almost everything to do with that specific clinic at the RSPCA and now... I feel almost starting again in, in a different yeah. um, in a different environment. It was really hard for me to start asking questions again. But as soon as I re yeah. reminded myself what we've just been saying, I was like, no, you need to ask these questions. Although you yeah. do have the knowledge and experience, you have no knowledge and experience in this environment. You really yes. need to put your hand up and say, I need help with this, which yeah. is important, but can, can be a struggle sometimes. You need to just check your ego at the door because it would have Definitely. been so easy for you to be thinking, oh my gosh, these guys think that I'm coming on as a head nurse and that I should know how to do this. I'm just going mm. to wing it. And the same with me, like when I took um, a good six months off with my son and I 
I did nothing except for the bookkeeping and the basic things I needed to do for work. A lot changed in that time, like whether it be we've changed from this standard catwormer to this one or um, we've got this new drug that we use for pre-medding or, mm-hmm. or whatever it be, um, things changed. And then it was still another good few months after the first six-month break before I came back and started doing one or two shifts a week. And I just did not care. I just checked my ego at the door, even though I'm like the owner of the business and yep. I'm the leader of the team. I'd be like, hey, guys, I forget where we keep this. Or guys, I forget how we do that. Or, um, okay, I haven't rolled a vein in nine months. I'm <laughs> probably going to be of no use but like, let's do it. You know, like you just mm-hmm. have to um, be be happy to ask people questions. And and I sometimes ask my most junior nurses, like, can you show me this really basic thing? And they just laugh and, and you know, nobody goes, oh my God, Kat, you're a moron. They just go, yep, Kat doesn't do so much of that anymore. Um, we'll, we'll help her out. So, yeah. so nobody's going to think any less of you. And those young nurses often have like really up-to-date knowledge um, that we, totally. you know, even though it's only been, you know, four or five years since I studied, it's still you know, new stuff coming out all the time. So it's always good to keep up. I think they're a really good gauge, the student vet nurses, of where you're at and where your protocols are at. And I will often ask um, one of my juniors lately, who's um, the most uh, recent student, she's um, only like a one or two modules through, and she does her assessments by looking at or learning the protocol, the way that the um, education provider teaches it, and then she needs to come to work and access our protocol and explain how we do it. And after she's finished, I'm always like, were we the same? <laughs> were we, were, That's a good test, were we yeah. behind in any way? Do we need to make any changes? And she'll be like, no, nah, we were doing everything the way that they said. And so, or, or she'll be like, oh, actually they do this this way now. So they, it's um actually like a, a free little, you, you know, sort of gauge or test mm. you can run your clinic through as they go. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of uh, updating our protocols and information, are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear as a vet nurse that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information? Um, you know, working in a shelter environment, you do see loads of unwanted letters of either cats or dogs um, that come mm. through because people haven't desexed their animals. Um, I'm not saying all animals should be desexed. If people, you know, want to be breeders, that is fine. It's more just the the really unplanned litters that nobody really wants um, that end up at the shelter. So I hear lots of clients saying things like, oh, I've been told to let her have a litter before we desex her. It'll calm her down mm-hmm. and things like that, which maybe were, you know, said to clients, you know, a few decades ago, but um, isn't really up-to-date information at the moment. And yep. just the amount of animals that come through the shelter, um, most of them are, you know, they didn't get their cat pregnant. They got it free from their friend. And then before you know it, there's you know two female cats in the house with litters and there's too many cats and all of it could be prevented by desexing the animals so um, I think yeah just outdated information on desexing and a lot of people also say things like desexing is mean I I can't take parenthood away from them you know silly silly things like that which I I struggle with a lot because I do see kind of the consequences of these yeah these Mm. unwanted litters that are everywhere and the neglect that they sometimes um, face so yeah just trying to educate people on the health benefits of desexing probably a good absolutely idea. I, I totally agree with that educating the public on the health benefits of desexing and also um, the reality of what it costs and why it costs what it does like yep. I'm actually uh, doing a charity drive at the moment for our 
local refuge and I, I always do this just before the end of financial year and I write to some of our suppliers and say, if you've got any short dated or expired stock, can you please send it up? I'll give it to the refuge. And I also shout out to clients, can you bring anything in by the 30th of June? And I just uh-huh. drive a big care package out to them and say, here's food and parasite preventatives and bedding and all this sort of stuff. And recently I put a post on our on ReadyBets um Facebook and Instagram page showing a photo of 50 slabs of tinned adult dog food that you can Uber sent. And they did the same last year. And I just was saying, isn't this so generous? Isn't this amazing? Going to take it out to the refuge. And everyone was writing comments going, that's so great. Good on you. Except for some guy wrote a comment saying, that's great. But we all know that the real problem is that desexing is too expensive. And that's Mm. why there are so many animals in shelters. And I just Mm. deep breath (laughs) and I clicked hide and then I clicked block. It's so hard (laughs) not to respond. Like so hard. And it's, you just have to shake it off and be like, okay, I'm not going to get into this with this person. But I think part of the education with the public of no, your dog's going to be fine if it doesn't have a litter is, um, you know, this is what it costs. And especially because, With a lot of um, veterinary surgeries, we charge bargain basement prices basically Mm. for desex because we really want to encourage doing it. So, you know, people will either get, um, as you say, they get their pet for free or um, they'll they'll have the the pet already desexed as part of um, the wonderful service provided by places like the RSPCA or they go to the vet and they have the procedure and it's cheaper than any other, you know, particularly for spays, any other abdominal surgery. Mm. It's quite a complex surgery. So I think um, some education that, you know, this is actually – um, this is actually a, a um, like a decreased rate um, for this and there's a cost. Yeah, and on that as well, you know, one of the most common things that would come in as emergency would be pyometras coming in um, and people would uh, then yep. complain, as you said, you know, we're charging quite low rates for this um, as well, but they would still complain that it would be a lot of money and you'd refer them back to a spay price and, and say, you know, it could actually have cost you this much, but people are always very, you know, angry about yeah. the price they're paying when sometimes it can be easily prevented. Yeah, and same with the male older dogs that are entire and they just um, have these chronic um, issues with mm-hmm. prostate or urination and inflammation and, you you know, you're kind of like, well, we, we just need to do a, like a procedure that can fix this and some particularly I find men who are mm, very attached dogs, to their dogs they're really attached yeah. yeah and you're like it's gonna be fine like it's it's not actually your testicles that we will be removing yeah yeah I know I have a couple of friends that have snuck their dogs in to get desexed when their husbands didn't know so it's funny <laughs> <laughs> oh how um, they could get home and like something seems different about him <laughs> There's also a few things people say, you know, um, common misconceptions, but, you know, people think, oh, you know, the RSPCA just puts everything down or, um, you know, that they're not particularly caring of animals that come in. So definitely now that Facebook is so easy to see what other people are saying, it's made a difference, but you might have a local notice board in your area, um, people suggesting, oh, I found a you found a litter of kittens you should take it here um and saying oh no the rspca will just kill all the kittens you can't take them there so um you're always being any kind of public entity that people know you're always going to have positive and negative opinions but um it's a really big misconception that can really damage um how the animals actually get through the shelter because a lot of the money does come from fundraising um and you know these negative opinions that are being put out affect Mm 
how much money is donated to us and therefore mm-hmm. how much care the animals can get. Um, so, yeah, just a big misconception because we don't have time limits of how long animals stay. It's not like, you know, a pound where an animal can stay for X amount of days. We've had yeah. animals stay for a very long time in order to find them the perfect place. We're not um, up for just giving an animal to anyone. We are actually quite yeah. fussy with, with who gets to take the animals home. So, mm-hmm. um, And we only ever euthanize animals for really severe medical or behavioral reasons. So, you know, the behavioral trainers will work extensively with the animals. The vet clinics will try and treat anything that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases you know work from those parts of the team aren't not enough but it's very very rare that animals do actually need to be euthanized and most of them find their perfect homes so that misconception can be quite damaging and yeah it's hard to change and i think the rspca um i i I think that from from what we know of a lot of shelters do have funding issues and a lot of um, like the shelter, one of the shelters that we worked, well, my husband worked with before we had um, ReadyVet, I know they did have to sort of look at things on a almost like a cost-benefit analysis and say, okay, well, this patient, we've now diagnosed this disease and to treat it would cost mm. X and for that same amount of money we could um, spay and neuter 10 animals and rehome them and be able to take them in. So I think um, I think it, it – it must be hard because there is so much variation and people know from pounds, you know, yeah. they, they do sort of go in and, and the clock starts running. So for a big organisation like the RSPCA, it is important to let people know that it is um, different because I know from when my brother worked there and I used to be like, how, how is this possible? Like from just donations. And he said that a lot of people would bequeath massive yeah. donations in their wills. So we need to make people, you know, keep wanting to do that rather than being sceptical of like, well, I don't know where the money's going to go because they just mm. put them down. And and it is quite separate. A lot of people don't realise there's the umbrella organisation of the RSPCA Australia, but each state's shelter is separate um, from yeah. each other. So there may be a really bad experience someone had in a different state um, that I may not know the full story of. And then that comes back towards, you know, the Canberra shelter and they're saying that it it was all of you that did it and et cetera. So it is hard because it's on the funding basis as well, being the small state with it's a per capita thing for funding. Um, So, you know, the RSPCA in Canberra with quite a small population would get a lot less funding compared to a you know, a big Sydney shelter, for example. So a lot of people don't realise that as well. And I think that this, you know, even though we're saying there's not actually as much euthanasia as you might think, I still, I think we've still touched on a lot of challenging aspects of shelter Mm. medicine and working in that environment. How, how are you looking after your mental wellbeing and preventing compassion fatigue? And how are you continuing to do that in the GP environment? Because obviously we're not immune from, from these issues in, um, you know, non-shelter environments. Definitely. Um, I think for myself, I really like alone time just to process things in my head. Um, I understand everyone's got really different coping mechanisms and sometimes sitting by yourself in the quiet can actually have a really negative effect on your mental health um, if you've got things going through your head. But for me, I just like to sit by myself, sometimes with a podcast, but most of the time not. Maybe doing like a mindless task like, I don't know, an adult colouring book or something lame like that but just something that will keep my hands busy but then my mind can wander um you know cuddling my cats and just kind of almost talking to myself in my head about what's happened and what I'm thinking um I'm pretty logical when it comes down to it so if I talk myself through something and see the positive that's come out of it um more than any of the negatives 
I always come out of the situation feeling a lot better. So almost having a little debate in my head about why it was a good day, not a bad day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm really enjoying the cat behavior course at the moment as well. So that is actually helping my mental well-being. As you said, yeah. um, one of your friends was using it as a bit of a treat. And it is a bit of a treat yeah. for me at the moment. It is a bit annoying sometimes to get the computer out and sit down and, and get sorted. But once I'm in it, I'm really enjoying it. So um, I think a key thing for a lot of people, especially if you are in a position like a senior nurse, is to try and turn off your work brain when you get home. Um, mm. I did really struggle with that at the beginning and I was finding myself doing a lot of work at home or stressing about things that I couldn't change when I was at home. And I really had to just tell myself that it wasn't helping um, and you need to give yourself you time. And if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to p- perform your job properly. So definitely switching off my brain um, and compartmentalizing my work as something separate has helped and avoided compassion fatigue a lot. And if you ever feel overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? Um, I'm, as I said before, I'm really big on lists. So I will just write like a giant A3 piece of paper just covered in different lists um, and just break it all down and putting things into perspective and in big writing and just clearly looking at it makes me realize that it is doable sometimes. Um, yep. I can't do it all at once. I can't do it all today. But then when I do get to scribble one thing out, I'm feeling that one step um, more clear in my head and more organized, I guess, and almost like a big mind map of what's going on, why I'm stressing. Um, but if I'm feeling really, really overwhelmed, I just kind of need to get away and I'll go camping for a weekend just to clear my head properly. Oh, nice. Yeah. So like just getting outside, I try not to take any technology, like even speakers, phones, computers. I'll take a phone and leave it in the car, but just having things like a paper book, um, sitting near some water while my partner fishes and stuff like that, um, really just gets all those external stresses out of my head and yeah I really enjoy it Um, so if I'm feeling too much then I just need that a list won't do for a big thing (laughs) yeah I think unplugging from technology is amazing and and I I know when I had my son I was overwhelmed just because it was such a massive change and I just took Facebook off my phone I took Instagram off my phone and most times during the day I'd just put it on do not disturb so that only my husband's mobile or the work landline could get through. So if my phone beeped or buzzed or whatever, I would know, okay, I should go look at that because I know who it is. And it wasn't just Facebook going, it's so-and-so's birthday today. Mm. And I know that helped me a lot. And that's something that I'll be doing um, with with my next baby because I know I'm going to feel overwhelmed. So I'm going to just put somebody else in charge of making sure that the podcasts publish and that the social media posts publish, but I'm going to take take you know everything I can off my phone so that Mm. it buzzes me the least possible because I think that can just be so stressful and so bad for you when you're in a bad space I think if you're in a good space it can be really healthy to feel connected like that but yeah sometimes technology you're like everything stopped beeping at me definitely and sometimes you just end up kind of getting sucked into just going through your Facebook feed and not really thinking about anything. Whereas if I'm sitting by the water and I've got a book with me, um, you know, I'm kind of, it's more of a good escape. It's not just kind of wasting my time looking at mindless stuff that at the end of the day, I don't really care about. I'm actually getting into stuff I enjoy. So yeah, I think it's really healthy. Me too. And what is the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement? Um, I think, maybe just people's opinion of what it is to be a fat nurse so I don't think people realize how much we do do and how mentally and physically challenging it can be each day 
Um, I know a lot of people kind of give me a bit of a look when they last time they saw me, maybe I was at university um, on my way for this you know, exciting research job. And now I say I'm doing vet nursing and sometimes people kind of give me a kind of surprise look like I'm not mm. doing something that's as important as I originally was going to. Um, yep. And I, I get really offended by that because, you know, the amount of stuff that we do and, and how hard people work and how complex, you know, the medical processes are that we have to understand, mm. Um, mm. the equipment we use, things like that. It, it is actually really hard and really intellectual mm-hmm. um, compared to, you know, some of my friends that did do the same uni degree as me. They may now be working in like a greenhouse planting you know, little seedlings and that's about it, maybe logging some data, not saying anything negative about them, but, you know, there's just this big conception of what it is to be a vet nurse and it doesn't always get seen as something that's something to aspire to be as much as other things. I totally get that because I obviously was a lawyer before I studied vet nursing and I still probably about once a a month, maybe once a fortnight, um, I'll get somebody you know, find out that I'm now doing vet nursing or that I used to be a lawyer and they will say to me almost pleadingly like, but but you will go back to law someday, mm. won't you? Like, yeah. or so do you miss law? And I'm like, can you not feel like sorry for me? Like what yeah. I'm doing is just as important and just as complex. And no, I'm, I'm not going to go back to law because it just um, didn't fulfill me the, the way that this does. And a lot of people even say, oh, so when are you going to study to be a vet and things like that? And yes, not thinking yes. that nursing is enough. Um, and to be honest, I'd rather be a nurse than a vet any day. And people don't realise as well from the outside just um, the risk of compassion fatigue for people in the industry um, yeah. and high rates of suicide. I think so many people, it's fine for them to be rude at the vet clinic, but they would never do it at their doctor's surgery. Um, And people really do need to realise that their actions can affect people. Um, And yeah, it's a hard job. And I think we deserve to have a bit more respect than than sometimes we do get treated. So totally. So public public awareness in all those areas would be great. And if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the veterinary industry, who would it be and what would you say? Um there's probably two people. So one of them's just my high school science teacher. Mm-hmm. Um when I first moved from Australia to Hong Kong, I ended up um, moving up like half a school year and I really felt like I was chucked in the deep end. Um, but he was really good. He did kind of an entry-level test to see where I was at. Um, although I hadn't even touched on half of the subjects, the subjects I had learned, I, I knew quite well. So he decided to put me in the top grade. I almost had a breakdown thinking that I'd never be able to do it. Um, but he reassured me that if you're interested in something and you want to do it, um, you can always give it a go and there's and there's no harm of trying. So he, he kind of just convinced me there's no harm in trying you know, for that first grade class. If it doesn't go well, it's not a drama. We can move you, but there's no harm in like pushing yourself and challenging yourself if you're really interested. Because I had mentioned that science was really interesting um, to me, but I just hadn't caught up with everyone. Mm. Um, so yeah, just giving me that confidence to give myself a, a challenge and give it a go. Um, and yeah, kind of just discuss with me different career options and open me up to the idea of it. So kind of got me in that science and animal science direction. Um, and another person would have been one of the managers at the RSPCA called Simon. So he's actually not a vet or a nurse, but he was one of the managers in the shelter and really, really impacted me during the like four years that I was there, just with um, a lot with cat behavior and getting me interested in kind of the basics of it, but also just how to deal 
um, with challenging situations that we see kind of in this industry. Um, I think it's important to have a really good team and um, be able to support each other. So I think he showed me the importance of that, of being able to work as a team. And when they are difficult things that come in, maybe a hoarding case or you know, something that's really emotionally distress- distressing, how to band together and yeah. everyone work together so we don't all burn out from it. Um, and yeah, I think you know five people working together can be as good as 10 compared to you know five people that aren't working together so absolutely and i think it's really important to have somebody in the team who is focused on that and in my team like i'd love to be doing more actual nursing and and more sort of hands-on nursing on the shifts that i am there or even when i'm working from home i'd like to be working more on clinical procedures and that sort of thing but something that I kept noticing was, okay, the areas that I keep getting pulled to is how to keep the team flowing together or how to make it so the workload Hmm. is distributed evenly and this person knows what this person's doing so that they can support each other or how to build morale or how to identify any toxicity that might be building up and and negate that. So I think it's great to have someone who has less of a, a clinical focus, like someone who potentially even, as you say, is not a vet or a vet nurse who's just standing back and looking at the team and going, how can we get everyone to support each other and function really well together? So I think that's a real luxury if a team has someone like that. Definitely, yeah. And just showing, you know, how much of a difference it can um, make on the outcome. You know, you get better work, you get better safety for your patients. You know, you're also more time efficient because you've got that workflow. So although it helps um, the men- mental health of your staff, it also helps productivity in the workplace as well. Yeah, totally. If everybody's yeah aware of what's going on and everyone's focused on running the day together then on what they're doing. And um, I think that trying to move move as like a single entity throughout the day, if you, if you have a day where the, the layout is logical like that, um, it, it can be um, really useful. I know at previous practices that my husband's worked at, that was something that he complained about is that he'd be sort of looking for a nurse to help him and, and saying oh I need this restocked I've run out of this or can someone help me with this and people would be saying well I'm busy because I'm doing this um, but it, there'd be no um, no one sort of looking at the big picture going okay well everyone's busy but you know what is the main focus right now and how can we all start working on you know through the list of priorities from most urgent to least urgent together like you know rather than all just trying to battle it out separately yeah and i think in the shelter it was an extra layer of complexity because we did have the separate departments that would have their own roles yeah um but say if the cattery was having a shocking day and everything was going wrong um that would uh, affect the vet clinic and how that would work and vice versa so Um, you would have to help out other sections because in the big picture, it would mean that everything worked out better. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if the vet clinic was quiet, we would help Cattery clean up at the end of the day and vice versa. Um, And working as a team, it also has to be kind of the interdepartment things as well that will make a difference. There's a knock-on effect for sure. And in your new role, are you in like a management or a leadership role? No, I'm actually just normal level nurse and I'm really enjoying kind of seeing how the rest of the world of vet nursing works. Um, It's really nice to have a bit fancier equipment. So we've got really nice, you know, endoscopes that we didn't have at the RSPCA and dental x-rays and things like that. Um, And I think a big part of it was for me to learn things that I wasn't exposed to before. Um, I think I'd kind of needed a bit of a, yeah, different exposure, I guess. Diversity. From a different, yeah, perspective. So... Um, I've been really enjoying it so far. It's really nice to see 
you know, how different practices work. Yep. Um, I keep seeing things like, oh, gosh, I wish I would have thought of that. Um, <laughs> but I think that's bound to ha- happen. And, yeah, re- everyone's really lovely and enjoying learning and seeing new new procedures that I hadn't seen before. That was a big part of the move. So, yep, yep. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, most of the procedures we were doing were desexing procedures with occasional, you know, lumpectomies yep. and things like that yep. or enucleations. But um the vet that had done most of the orthopedics had left so yep. we were kind of stuck doing um the most simple stuff and it's been super exciting um you know lots of nice cruciates gastroplexies even just yep. things that i didn't get to see often enough before i'm seeing almost daily and yeah it's exciting yeah it's really important i think to to do that move before you get stale to say yeah i think i'm you know starting to be able to do you know, my day-to-day here with my eyes closed, maybe it's time to go specialist or move from shelter to GP or GP to shelter. So yeah, good on you for being proactive and making the move. And I wish you all the best um, with the move. And it's been really nice getting your insight from the four years at um, RSPCA and shelter medicine and just um, nice hearing a bit, a bit about the day in the life. Thanks, Kat. It's been great to speak to you. I've really enjoyed it. You too, Sophie. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.